thanks for listening to Reads and Weeds. This is Shelly Smith. If you enjoy the show, please like, subscribe, rate, and review. And tell me where you're listening from and what you're reading. Enjoy the show. Okay, hold on one second. Hey, it's hey. Shelly and Microfile. Woo! And we, we did not start the recording right away because both of us needed a moment to vent about the joys of activism and advocacy work. <laughs> Joy is a really uh, soft way of putting it. I uh, I am joyful and passionate about the Me work too. we do. Me uh, too. But it's work. Uh, good things work. take time, take effort, and yeah. sometimes there's a struggle getting to that end goal, and uh, yeah. it, it can be a little taxing sometimes. And so, oh yeah. If, those, if there's people out there that are listening and going, well, I'm in a state where I'd like to be a cannabis activist, or I'm in a state where I'd like to do criminal justice reform. And you're like, I'd like to get in on that. And you're thinking, boy, when we get this like-minded group of people together, they're all going to, the communication is going to flow and we're all going to be on the same page about the way to go about things. It's going to be glorious. We're going to change the world. And you're like, yeah. So you get in and you have a set of skills that you'd like to contribute but maybe somebody's already kind of doing that. So you just kind of hang out and do whatever needs doing. And you're like, it's cool. I'm, I'm in the game. And then you realize that the thing, like doing the thing is only part of it. Working with other human beings <laughs> is a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's definitely a challenge. It's definitely a challenge sometimes. Yeah. And I can't tell you the n- number of times I've gotten involved with the group. And like you said, just expected we were all going to, we're all about the same issues. So we're all must be like minds. And yes. you know, we're all coming from <laughs> our own experiences oh and God. there will be impasses that you need to work through. And oh yeah. So it's worth it. Neither one of us are saying it's not worth it. We're in the thick oh, of it. One of us this is why I do this. It's totally worth it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the thing I was saying to the listeners is find that group that you want to work with. that's doing that thing to help animals or soil or prison reform or homelessness or whatever. Find that group and then take a big look at why you're doing it. Maybe an ego check. Um, Mm-hmm. And then go in knowing that not that everyone is as passionate as you and totally unique. And it's humbling. It's humbling. Anyway, I'm here with Mike Ophile. <laughs> Congrats on the move to Grand Rapids. I haven't seen Mike since we did January 2nd, the Eugenia Bone book, Mycophilia, and that was really fun. And uh, since then, Mike has moved and moved all of his books and all of his rocks and all of his musical oh. recording equipment. Let's not even talk about what it takes to move a rock collection. I thought <laughs> books and vinyl weighed a lot. Boxes <laughs> of rocks is literally dead weight. <laughs> yeah. Mike's like, you know how I want to live my life is sort of lighthearted, but with the heaviest physical objects that I can own. <laughs> Real heavy. Oh like, my goodness. You know what? You know what else is as heavy as like bags of substrate that people <laughs> throw in. Those are really heavy. 100%. Um, oh my God. I love those glasses. Look, we're like, 
we're like the glasses do up. Okay, they, so they match my pants. Oh my god, that's fabulous! Because this is audio, we both wear glasses. Mike's are yellow, and his pants are yellow, and it's amazing. Or is it like lime green? I can't tell. I, electric yellow. It's electric yellow. I love that's it. what I'm gonna call it. Okay, so a while back, um, the reason I've had Mike on the show before is because he's sort of an encyclopedia about psychedelics and mushrooms. He was on the steering committee for the decriminalized nature Ann Arbor movement, which passed, which means that um, psychedelics are no longer to be prosecuted within Washtenaw County. Now he's working with doing that with the state of Michigan and nationally. And so a while back, he was talking like, we should do this book and we should do that book and we should do this book. I'm like, well, that's a whole year. <laughs> Maybe what we could do is you come on and give us like your top 10 or top five, whatever list of mushroom or psychedelic books and why. So we trust you. And what I'm hoping we can do with this list is give people like a jumping off point of like, I want to learn about this. And this is a good person to learn it from. And where can I go next? So what do you got for us? Well, you know, we, uh, when you initially contacted me, uh, it was left a bit open-ended. Do I want to talk about mushrooms some more? Do I want to talk about psychedelics? Do I want to talk about drug policy? All things I'm very passionate about. It's kind of, it's kind of sad because I'm facing the back of my bookshelf right now. So I actually can't see any of my books except for the ones we're going to talk about. Otherwise I'd have them whole bunch of sidebar here yeah, um yeah. but maybe, uh, maybe we're blessed maybe we're blessed that you're staring at the back I, of the- I, I might overwhelm you with titles if i could see my case what i will say is uh that was a very tough pick for me and i think where i settled is psychedelics and spirituality um oh yeah as kind of a title or, you know, a a theme for this discussion. The number one book I actually wanted to talk about, which is a little less psychedelics and spirituality, more just a deep dive into the life and experience of one psychedelic, in my mind, hero in history is William Leonard Ricard's book, Rosa Paracelsus. Uh, very fantastic book. Show that for the video. Just show it. No, from the side. I want people to see how big it is. Uh, it's a whopper. <laughs> it's almost 800 pages. It, it's definitely a tome worth digging into. He, man has had a fantastic life. But after a little bit of discussion and some other projects we're working on, it seems very possible that we could have a chance to go over this book in its entirety for a show. So we are going to set that one aside and uh, not talk about that too much. But if you're interested. But but spoiler, in June, we're hoping to talk about that book, The Rose of Paraclesis. Paracelsus. Paracelsus with the author, (laughs) possibly. I I can give a, I'll give a little bit more background there. Uh, William Leonard Picard uh, was arrested in the 90s, I want to say, late 90s. Uh, There was, everybody knows as the Kansas Missile Silo LSD bus. It's the largest LSD bus, I believe, in U.S. history. And he was sentenced to multiple life terms in prison because of that 
bust. And due to COVID, he actually was released either the very end or the very begin of last year, or the very beginning of this year. And to me, that's really great news. I'm really excited. But I mean, he's got doctorates from Harvard, not doctorate, doctorates from Harvard on public policy. And I believe biochem or neurochem guys are freaking genius. So, um, a really fantastic story of his life and his involvement with the LSD trade and his time in prison. So, uh, I, I really do look forward to having those discussions in June. Also, I believe he'll be a speaker for our upcoming festival in Ann Arbor in September, Entheofest. Um, Entheofest. Be on the lookout. Well, look up Entheo Show, E-N-T-H-O Show podcast every other Friday that all things psychedelics and entheogens and they're having entheofest for the first time and that movement is growing if you're curious about that you can learn a lot decriminalize nature michigan yeah decriminalize nature america just decriminalize nature look that up there there's the national movement decriminalize nature.org uh there's decrimnaturemi.org that's the michigan but then like you said entheo show uh this friday 4 p.m and every other friday at 4 p.m live on facebook we're hoping to hit some other platforms like twitch and youtube soon but yeah well we are hoping to have him on our show as well as well as being a speaker september 19th at entheo fest which if you're a fan of uh hash bash in ann arbor This is going to be the entheogen, or I'm getting a little bit more into that meaning, but psychedelic plant and fungi fest, equivalent of hat splash in September. So, uh, wow, wow, wow. It'll be beautiful. It'll be beautiful. And hopefully not a football Saturday. (laughs) No, no, actually it is a football Saturday. 920 is a football Sunday which is weird they're holding it on saturday i believe that's what's going on um because we wanted to do it on 9 20 which is international psilocybin awareness day uh but uh and also september 21st 921 is the anniversary of us winning in ann arbor with decrim nature so um so we're going to be september 19th very looking forward to it yeah more about that book later, but I'll put it in the notes. Okay, so how many books did you pick, and what's what's? Just do whatever <laughs> order you want to right do. Now. For your video, we've got five books here. This first one, "The Mystery of Mana" by Dan McCurr. The Mystery of Mana by Dan McCurr. Okay, Mana M A N N A. Okay, just, just like in the Bible. Yes. And subtitle for this is The Psychedelic Sacrament of the Bible. Oh, wow. Well, so, okay. So just dig into that one. Why is that um, one something somebody should read? When did it come out? Who wrote it? 2000 is when it came out. All these books are pre 2000 in uh, being written. I, I honestly not sure this is the best one to start with, but we're going to because it's on top. So Dan Merker, essentially, he makes the argument that manna, if you remember when the Israelites were cast out of Egypt in biblical lore, 
they were sent through the desert and, you know, trying to return to their land given to them by God. And in the desert, there were, it, it was a trial because, you know, there's no food, there's no anything and people are dying. Essentially, the Lord, according to the Bible, sent down manna from heaven. And there's always been this like kind of unclarity what is manna some translations from hebrew literally refer to it as bread other interpretations lead to it being called a mushroom uh, one of the other books i get into will definitely make the mushroom argument but essentially he makes the argument that the miracles of christ so the manna in, in the desert the miracles of christ the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden or in the Garden of Adonis, uh, depending on whether you follow a Christian timeline or even an Islamic timeline, uh, the equivalent of Eden to Islam is Adonis, that there is actually a physical explanation for all these miracles that happen. He makes a very, very strong case for LSD, essentially. And I know, like, LSD was created in the 40s. Like, uh, how'd they have that thousands of years ago? Well, what a lot of people don't know is LSD comes from a fungus, a fungus that affects uh, cereal grains. And so Hmm. when we talk about cereal grain before we get into modern culture, Mm-hmm. We had no means to take out fungus that affected the crops, you know, forms of blight that affected the crops. You harvested what you harvested and you got what you got out of it. And if a blight took over, you still tried to harvest what you could off the plant. While the manna thing is a little bit harder to explain, uh, some of the linguistic evidence, you got to realize all of our interpretations are Latin based. And Dead Sea Scrolls, most of the original texts for any biblical or Kabbalistic Jewish book is not is not a Latin base. It's very Arabic, Aramaic. Some of it even traces back to Sumerian languages, which may predate Egyptian hieroglyphs. So it's really it's really difficult to like make a solid case and to know anything for sure. Uh, but I really like his take on the bread that fed the many and showed them the glory of God, because that's what manna did. That's what the yeah. Eucharist is about, where, you know, yeah. it, take this in remembrance of me. This is the blood of Christ. This is the body of Christ. And that actually traces back before the last dinner and before, you know. Oh my gosh, the, I've never heard anybody say last dinner. Uh, <laughs> last supper. Uh, <laughs> the last brunch. We all remember the last brunch, right? <laughs> it was tragic. It was tragic. Uh, there's the showbread at uh, the Temple of Solomon. There's all this indication of like grain worship, not just amongst the Israelites. Throughout history, uh, you look, we'll get into the Greeks a little bit later uh, for a good parallel to this. And his case is, it's all ergotism. It's all the fungus that grows and affects cereal grasses. Now, was the word you said ergotacin? Ergotism. So can you spell that word and define it for me? Okay. So ergot or ergo E-G-E-R-G-O-T is okay. the name of the fungus that 
or a fungus that affects cereal grain. Ergotism is, according to Charles Bacon, who wrote a massive tome for U of M uh, on microbial endophytes or fungus that grow inside of plants. Interesting. Argues that this was the cause of mad cow disease where, you know, cows were feeding off the grass in the fields and, you know, they get this thing called staggers where they kind of start walking funny and then they start foaming at the mouth and they can die. And, you know, that's the whole cause of an outbreak of mad cow. And we have several examples in the Bible of ergotism very clearly being displayed, even though they didn't know what it was. Um, One of the best examples, I can't think of which kingdom it was. There used to be a means on which the Lord would decide for the kingdom whether a woman charged with adultery was worthy of continuing forward or whether she was to be laid to rest. Found? Okay. Well, um, and so what they did is they would lock her in the threshing floor. So in the old days, you harvest your grain with a sickle and then you'd thresh the grain. You'd take the stalks of grain and you'd beat it on the threshing floor to break out all the berries because um, we didn't have, you know, modern processes. Yeah. Now, there's ergot in there. There is a chance of ergotism. Now, ergotism would make you kind of go crazy and foam at the mouth. It's not properly turned into LSD. However, if it had fermented in any way, it would become more LSD-like, supposedly, and less ergotism like so this whole idea of sentencing a woman into the threshing floors with nothing to eat but you know the dust on the floor and god would choose for her whether she was worthy or not does she go crazy and foam at the mouth and keel over and die Mm -hmm. or does she have some ecstatic mystical vision similar to what we associate with lsd or psychedelic mushrooms There's several cases in the Bible that really align to this. In Dan Merker's book, he makes the, with the Eucharist, uh, the idea of feeding thousands uh, from this two loaves of bread. Now, if you give a sheet this big, can have a hundred hits of acid on it. Acid is dosed in the microgram category, like such a small dosage necessary to have an experience. If this was, and it also takes away appetite. So if this was split amongst thousands and everybody given a little bit, but their hunger was met and they, and they all, feel like walking for like two days. Cause why all, not? They all witness this miraculous event. This mm-hmm. sounds a lot like LSD. Uh, again, I haven't read this book in over a year. It's really hard to like recall the specifics of a lot yeah, of Yeah, but but I get it. I get it. Um, we just did we just did a Graham Hancock book and trying to just talk about it real quick is virtually impossible, but I think you gave a really good it's fa- like I'm in because there are so many mysteries where you're like, well, what does that mean? He went blind suddenly. Scales fell off his eyes. What does it mean? You, you know, there's a lot of those things you just kind of have to go, oh, okay, well, I'm lucky enough to have been a part of a church where uh, both of my pastors will go like in the original text, this, when this was written, this word meant this, but for the audience, they probably were referring to this, which historically just like they are really good at pulling it all apart. 
But sometimes you just have to think, what does that even mean? You know, like taking into consideration all the, the storytelling aspects and the things that hadn't been yeah, I I'll, get it. I'm in, I'm intrigued. Like, and t- can you tell me a little bit, uh, just a little bit about the author? What's the deal with the author? And then we'll move on to the next. Um, one. Well, I, I probably have a little bit more I can give you before we do that very quick. Okay. Uh, okay. So, I, being called psychedelic sacrament of the Bible, if you come from a very Judeo Christian background, you're going to see a lot of the miracles and the stories from both you know Jewish texts and Christian texts aligning that we don't have a modern day explanation for and so we attribute them to miracles without any scientific foundation but he also draws into parallel texts from that same era philo of alexandria where sure most people on a book show are familiar about the uh library of alexandria the greatest library to ever exist and it was destroyed. But Philo, some of his texts have survived. And he describes very similar scenarios and kind of paints Jesus as a man. Um, and it's very interesting uh, to take not only the Judeo-Christian approach, but find various you know, parallels from the same era, as well as drawing into Islamic Um, mythology and mysticism as well and drawing this all together he interviews uh different rabbis uh different pastors throughout the book talks about saint bernard of clairvaux uh the holy grail and the inquisition talks about uh kabbalism really delves deep in here so the title can be a little misleading because it says psychedelic sacrament of the bible he's talking about the mysteries of the old world. He just Mm -hmm. chose manna because it was this substance that rained down from heaven and allowed them to see the glory of God, which to me is the psychedelic experience. I, I don't believe in, you know, some being per se, but psychedelics, if anything, have shown me the glory of God. They opened my eyes. Yeah. So I don't know a ton about him. I'll just kind of pull off the back here. Dan McCurr uh, taught at Syracuse University and Auburn Theological Seminary, focused on the varieties of religious experience in historical, cross-cultural, and psychoanalytical perspectives. Other books, including The Power with Which We Do Not Know, Gnosis, and The Ecstatic Imagination. Cool. Uh, Gnosis is a really great book. When was that one written? This was written in 2000. Okay. Kind of continuing down that same path, some more well-known authors. We have here The Road to Eleusis. E-L-E-U-S-I-S. The Road to Eleusis. Okay. Yeah. So Eleusis is a very well-documented thing. Uh, It's a location, but uh, throughout history, uh, we have this thing very well-documented called the Greater Mysteries. And there's also the lesser mysteries, but we're going to talk about the greater mysteries here in the road. Oh, too. good. Good. I don't know. Why would we even fuck around with lesser mysteries? You know yeah, what no, this is the greater mystery. <laughs> this um, is the greater mystery. <laughs> and what is known is there was some sort of sacrament. 
some sort of consumed, depending on what you read, food or potion that was consumed. The authors here are Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and Carl P. Ruck. Our Gordon Wasson is a famed mycologist. He was a financial banker, but he was also a hobbyist mycologist. His wife was Russian and really into mushrooms and helped him dispel his fungophobia that inherently bred into him and being a Westerner, yeah. uh, which we talked about on your last, the last show together. Right, right. Uh, but he's the guy that first went down to Awaka and met with Maria Sabrina and consumed the first Westerner to be known to have consumed the psilocybin mushroom. And well-documented, it wrote an article for Time Life. W-A-S-S-O-N? Yeah, our Gordon. Oh, I remember this now. I remember this now. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, this article. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So that's a little background on him. He's the mycologist author. Okay. Albert Hoffman. We all know him. Father of LSD, discoverer, mm-hmm. chemist, genius. I don't really need to go too much into him. Bicycles. Uh, he likes to ride bicycles while he's high on LSD. Maybe okay. not a... That's a very quick way of I like saying... That, I like that, you know, think about if you're that person where somebody goes, all you need to know about him is that he likes to ride bicycles on LSD. It's, I, it's like, what's oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Oh. <laughs> Carl P. Rock is a historian, a very well-respected historian. And so together with a little help from Robert Forte, who is actually one of the authors of another book we're going to talk about, uh, Robert Forte did the editing for this. They try to unveil, and this is a very specific wording, unveil. Um, for those not familiar with mushrooms, mushroom, a lot of mushrooms grow with a veil that protects the surface the gills where the spores come from while they're in a nursery state and protects that until they're ready to go and then they unveil and so they call this unveiling the secrets of the mysteries so a little bit of background here leading in and they talk about it walson was of the theory for a long time that this was going to be an Amanita muscaria mushroom, that the sacrament had something to do with a mushroom. And he draws this back to parallels from the Vedas. Uh, specifically in the Rig Veda, there's 10 different sub books within the Rig, Rig Veda. And one of them, the ninth one, is entire, the, the, the 10 books are called the mandalas. And the ninth mandala is entirely dedicated to this substance called soma, which is also widely believed to have been an Amanita muscaria mushroom. For those okay, not- hold, hold on one second. Say the name of the book again, the title. The Road to Eleusis. The Road to Eleusis. Okay, and then are you saying Amanita muscaria? That's a type of mushroom. Can you just say that for me one more time? Um, Amanita muscaria. So you ever seen one of these? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, this little is your Amanita muscaria. adorable red and white mushroom that he just pulled down a little figurine. Oh, well, you know, it was the basis for Super Mario Bros. So he had this theory that if, you know, he can tie it to Soma, that this could explain some of the rituals of either old world. Now, the the ritual, the Eleusis happened 
I can't tell you. It happened for like 10,000 years, though. Probably 15, 12,000 BCE to about 4,000 BCE. So, so this... Eleusis is a happening? Yes, it's a, it's a pilgrimage that started. Okay. So I, I think that's actually probably a good thing to get into. I'm actually going to pull another book out here because I know I have the whole story underlined here and I just want to make sure I have this right. Yeah, I just wanted to define. Uh, yeah, so Amanita Mysteria yeah. is the red and white mushroom that we all associate very openly. I know I wrote this down somewhere. Mm -hmm. Of course, I can never read any notes I leave for myself. Um, <laughs> That's great. Not uh, Demeter. Demeter is one of the Greek goddesses, one of the wives of Zeus, the greatest of the Greek gods, right? Mm -hmm. And she had this daughter, Persephone. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get into like why this becomes a ritual in Greece. So in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, who the author is actually unknown, uh, it's not by Homer, even though it's called the Homeric thym, or hymn, when the story goes that Persephone was kidnapped by Hades, the god of the underworld, mm -hmm. and, you know, kept prisoner there. And trying to figure this all out, Demeter, you know, is like going to the air gods, like, why could this happen? Why could this happen? Mm -hmm. A little help from Helios, the god of the sun, you know, offers, Zeus let this happen. Zeus knew this was happening, made an arrangement with Hades to take oh. your dog. Oh, no. So she leaves Olympus. She's like, I'm out. Peace. And she goes and stays in this small little village in Greece as like a midwife, essentially. Like, she's just an older lady that like, she goes and gets water. She helps take care of the babies, but very low key. Yeah. Like undercover queen. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Undercover goddess. Undercover goddess is what she's doing. Kind of exactly. like me. I live that way too. That's great. Eventually, there's an arrangement made that Persephone can be freed for half of the year from Hades. And half the year, she has to go back. And so Demeter, to this king that's letting, him, letting her live in the palace, mm -hmm. comes out and says, look, I am the goddess Demeter, unveils herself. Mm -hmm. And let me teach you this ritual that you're going to repeat every year. And Persephone is goddess of fertility, of the harvest, mm -hmm. of new growth. And so there, you'll see a parallel start to form. Persephone's time in Hades is the cold winter and the fall of the leaves off the tree. And Persephone is released. And that is the coming of spring. Yeah. So to a pre-industrial civilization that is just starting to really have a grasp on farming and all this. This is big stuff. You know, we're talking 15,000 years before Christ. Yeah, so yeah. they take this very seriously. So essentially what it draws to is Eleusis was a spring fertility festival that eventually started in this little kingdom, but eventually spread out until it <clears throat> became common law for all Athenians when they become of age to participate 
in this ritual once in their lifetime. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all participated and wrote about the mysteries. So, so they wrote about the road to Eleusis? That, well, they, they, they all made mention of the mysteries. The thing is, the mysteries themselves are mysteries because it's, it's essentially like a secret. Nobody actually knows. It was, we don't talk about it. We go, we participate, and we come back and we take what we took from it. But some slipped accounts kind of indicate, you know, it was this unveiling, the seeing of the gods, the understanding of the grand plan. It's something... Yeah only need to do once in a lifetime to get it. It sounds a lot like a psychedelic experience to me. Sounds kind of like the toad. <laughs> <laughs> so Watson agrees. Uh-huh. And so he, on his hunt, uh, decides it's the same and name as scary mushroom. The road to Lucis, actually, he changes that viewpoint. Him and Albert Hoffman and Ruck make a very strong case that this was actually a fermentation of rye. Which right oh. is cereal grass containing ergot. I got so into the other story from the other book that I forgot. Oh, okay. okay, okay, okay we're okay, going right. to connect dots this whole oh, great. way. All these books read late. Okay, okay. Um, I, I mean, you can see, uh, I, I realize the video won't be there, but uh, in the cover of the book, it's an old Greek oh, carving, and yeah, you see. The sharing of a mushroom between two people as like symbolic of Elizabeth. And this is what leads Wasson to this idea that must be a mushroom. And if you look at the ergot fungus, when it actually blooms, that's not the right word because it's not a flower, but when it fruits out of the grain, so... A grain is, you know, a little like berry. It's a little tan colored seedling. Yeah. Ergot is a long black thing that grows deep purple black that grows in the place of the grain. And if you let it fully fruit, it splits open and a little tiny purple mushroom will pop out. Weird. Okay. I got to see it. Yeah, keep going. Claviceps purpurea. I may have butchered the last half of that, but uh, scientific name. Essentially, what they the argument they come to in the road to Eleusis with the work of a chemist, a mycologist, and a historian is they decide that it's this fermentation of rye, and that these people were essentially taking old world LSD thousands of years before LSD is discovered. Okay, I'm putting my phone up to the camera. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Okay, so if you guys Google ergot images, and there's all these beautiful, like, I would legit print this out and put it on my wall. It's beautiful. So you can see it looks like a little stalk of wheat. Part of it looks like a little red mushroom. Yeah, so that's interesting rye ergot fungus Uh, so it's commonly associated to rye because it's the most common that it takes over but this can happen on any cereal grain happens to wheat happens barley oats right on down the line oh yeah this is a really fantastic book i can't get too much into their arguments of how they switched and everything but i think having the backing to the Spring Fertility Festival 
modern day appropriated by the Christians and called Easter and having nothing to do with fertility anymore, other than the fact we symbolize with an egg. Well, and rebirth. It's supposed well, to be rebirth. Rebirth, yes, rebirth. absolutely. Uh, the, yeah. the rebirth of, or, you know, the New resurrection life. of Christ. Resurrection. Given. Absolutely. This is a tradition that's been passed down thousands of years before anybody supposedly walked out of a tomb a third day later. Yeah. I want to jump to another book from this, though. Because the three authors of this book publicly spoke out against this next book. What? The three authors that we were just talking about? Uh, This gets really deep. This gets really deep. Okay, okay, okay. So, John M. Allegro. Okay, John M. Allegro. Wrote in the 1970s, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. Okay. So drawing back to Dan Mercur's line, he pulls all the bits of the Bible and the miracles back to this Amanita muscaria mushroom. Yes. Back on Amanita again. We're off of Ergot. Wasson and Mercur both now lean towards Ergot, but Allegro was on the Amanita kick. Okay. However... John Allegro is a linguist. He was one of, in the 70s, the most respected linguists studying the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like, the foremost authority on the subject. Oh, interesting. Okay. And he argues some of the same things I did earlier about the problems with language and translation between not even time, but across different alphabets and different systems of language. We're going from Sumerian and Aramaic and Arabic into Latin languages like Greek and Latin and English and Spanish. And obviously there's going to be something lost in translation. So he really breaks down language in this. More than half this book is appendixes, breaking down his footnotes from each time he like draws an image in language. You go to the back, shows you in Sumerian, these symbols mean this, translating into Arabic means this, that's pulled into Greek meaning this, and shows how over time the world changes. Kind of like you're talking about the leaders of your church, talking about to them it means this, to us it means that. Yes. Um, and we, we do another thing my church does is uses the feminine. Like they'll say our mother in heaven, mm. hallowed be thy name. Like they I let you that. use. And then we do um, the benedictions in different languages, like just different actual languages. So it's interesting to go like that person is doing whatever they're doing in Japanese. I get it. I get it. What they're doing is leaving us with a message, leaving us with a teaching. And I get it. I don't have to totally know it's, it's, Really interesting, because even to think of the, the way a word helper is used or um, first son, what whatever, and you realize, oh, that held so much weight at that time that it could have almost been used as currency, or, or that's why it struck fear, and you don't even know these things. So this language, if this book is all about language, I'm in. So I'm in. That's, you just nailed John M. Allegro's point. Oh, 
like digging into the problems with language and what had power versus what like actually was in the time things were authored versus the time things became accepted. Because as we all know, the Bible was assembled in 437 AD uh, in Rome. Uh, like, <laughs> like that's 400 years 405 years after christ supposedly died we finally adopt christianity <laughs> and decide what books become the bible but it's the word of god i won't get too much into my problems with that though but essentially john m allegro as one of the leaders of the church making this analysis is excommunicated in the 70s from the church he is stripped of all he was part of the church yeah he's excommunicated he is stripped of all of his accreditations from every institution that's ever given him a degree to make the case essentially and this is the stretch but i'm gonna go straight to the straight to my favorite part of this okay okay this is a spoiler but i'm running with it okay jesus was a mushroom it's a metaphor. Jesus wasn't a man. Jesus was a mushroom. Oh, that's what he's saying. Boom. Oh. And like, I, I mean, the first time I read that, I'm like, did I read that right? Jesus was a mushroom. I, I read it another time. I've I read this book three times and it's fantastic. Because, but, okay, let me, before you go any further, let me take a guess. Let me take a guess. Because, right, I'm a student of the Bible. I'm a student of the mushroom. Let me see if I can take a guess. Uh, it's a trinity. It's sort of a reproducing mystery that should be an element of it. It's a knowing omnipotency. It's a healing, um, forgiveness, reborn after three days. Like, are these cases that are made on how Jesus is a mushroom? So those are all support. Those are all support he makes. Okay. Quite literally. He breaks down the language of all the names of Christ and the Trinity to literally mean red and white mushroom. What? So Holy you would think, crap. So you think I can't wait. somebody that puts their entire career on the line loses everything that they've worked so hard to achieve and become in life to make said oh statement. My. Would be championed by men like Wasson, Rock, and Hoffman, the psychedelic community, which he's trying to also champion, right? No. The psychedelic community comes out against him too. He's left with nobody. And this book is left in the dust for the next 30 years. Totally forgotten. Uh, uh, Vaguely referred to by McKenna and a couple times by Mercur. But wow. let's fast forward. Let's fast forward to about 10 years ago, probably okay. 10 years ago right now actually. Okay. Wilson and Hoffman are dead now. But Carl P. Ruck is still alive, the historian. Okay. And in this version, the 40th anniversary edition there is an entire 40-page thing called Fungus Redivitus, written by Carl P. Ruck to be added to this, recanting him, Wasson, and Hoffman's original opposition, saying, given the new 
archaeological, historical, linguistic, etc. evidence that's come to light, I recognize we were wrong and we should have never what? shunned this book. <gasps> and you need to read it again. This is so dramatic. So how? This is how long, how much time passed between them like condemning the book and him recanting? That's, that's 40 years. 40 years? Oh my gosh, that's some that's a humble man. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? 40 been, years. 40 years. And you know, now John M. Allegro's dead. So John M. Allegro never got to hear this recant oh, of the story but that's why his daughter who is based right here in beautiful grand rapids michigan what reprinted a 40th anniversary with carl rock's uh oh my gosh wow it's a very tough book it's not that long like i said half of it, it it's a normal size book but half of it probably from like here is all index it's right. all language breaking down it's a, it's, it's a, yeah. Yeah. It's further explanation of the point he's trying to make in the first half. Well, it's good but, to know when you're going into a book, like some books are like, oh, I read it. I tore through it. It was an adventure. And some books are like reading your college textbook on the subject that you have to take. <laughs> you're this is like, some of the most technical reading I've ever done. Just like. I learned, I, I can read and write Hebrew. I understand quite a lot of Latin. I have a decent understanding of Greek. I obviously speak English. Yeah, so you're killing it. <laughs> even with my linguistic prowess, yeah, the language breakdowns he's doing really like, I was spending 10, 20 minutes a page on this book. Like trying oh to dig through. Took me several weeks, all day, every day, to really get to this book. Oh, um, you know what? So, did you read any of those Graham Hancock books, the America Before, or the the way I did them with Jamie Lowell? I, for the second book of his that I read, I would just keep an iPad or something next to me so I could like look up this geographical reference or look up this historical document reference or look up this argument within the archaeological community story from 1983 you know like I was I couldn't get through a couple of pages without it's good to be forewarned you if you're going into this book what's the name again that's the sacred mushroom and the cross sacred mushroom and the cross if you're going into this book you need to know that I wish I had the internet when I read this the first yeah. time I read this in jail, the only time I ever understood it, I did not have the internet. I wish I did, but I I will be going back into this because this year is the 50th anniversary of the title, oh. uh, written in 1971. I wouldn't be too surprised to see a 50th anniversary version come out with the rock statement as well as probably an index of the new supporting evidence that Ruck speaks about. Wow. Okay. I love it. All right. All right. So, you know, I don't know where to go next. We, we already covered three books and used oh, a ton. Oh, just pick, but... a, just pick something. Grab anything. All right. What We're going to go with something a little bit, a little bit calmer, uh, okay. a little less drama involved. Food of the Gods, Terrence McKenna. Okay. Food of the Gods. Uh, the Search 
for the original tree of knowledge. You are going to see a theme here, all looking for the Garden of Eden. We're all trying to relate the mysteries of religion past and spirituality future to psychedelics and all of these titles. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily looking for it. It's this is what we found. So we're talking about it. Yeah. Well, McKenna has some pretty far out there ideas. A lot of people, even within the psychedelic community, as soon as you say McKenna, they distance themselves really fast because of some of his really far from our modern culture ideals. Right. Wait a minute. Is he the one, was he in the other mushroom book a lot? Oh, and Mycophilia? He's not in that one a lot, right? He might have been mentioned, but he definitely wasn't in it a lot. Yeah, I think you're okay. thinking of Paul Stamets. I'm, I'm thinking about somebody else, but but okay. um, yeah, go ahead, because I know this name. You've ever eaten a psychedelic mushroom in your life, you know the name Terrence McKenna. It's just, it's just synonymous with mushrooms. But the thing is, he puts forth a really interesting idea here. It's his manifesto for a new world based on the world of the past. His argument is essentially pre-human, pre-homo sapien, Mm-hmm. During the 100,000 years, 200,000 years before of hominid existence, like we'd evolved from ape, but we hadn't quite reached human. So Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Homo neanderthal, uh, all through these evolutions, he's talking about overpopulation in the jungle, you know, this tiny slice of paradise in Africa. Mm-hmm. The Garden of Eden, as it were, to him, where population growth is too rapid and the jungle can no longer support us. Mm-hmm. So we head out into the savannas, into the grasslands of Africa, mm-hmm. and there's a lot less food. There's less abundance. And so we need to learn to hunt. So we're moving from gatherer to hunter. I mean, we're still gatherers at our core, but we have to learn to hunt. Sure. And you're wandering through the grasslands trying to catch an antelope or some sort of cattle or whatever. Anybody that hunts will tell you, step one, find the scat. Find the poop of the animal. Oh, I was like, scat? It's the proper term. Sure. Um, We're hungry. We're out of energy and we're trying to hunt this lion or this boar, this cattle out in these grasslands and we're starving. And there's this beautiful fruit growing out of the poop. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody that knows anything about psilocybin mushrooms is they grow on shit. So he puts forth this idea called stoned ape theory. Oh, yeah, I've heard this. Okay. Okay. So the breakthrough of consciousness that allowed humans to really develop tools and to learn to harvest the grains, not only in the savannah to eat, but to then farm the grains and build community around our now ability to create agriculture and language 
the because it's the same time we're finally learning to talk. We couldn't communicate other than like at, at this point. There was no language. There was grunts. And he's arguing that this is all paralleled with the discovery of the psilocybin mushroom. And he provides fantastic archaeological evidence for this, specifically the Tassili cave paintings in what's now Algeria. They are the oldest cave paintings known on earth. And in them, there is this god figure, B-Man, he's called. But B-Man is covered in mushrooms, just covered in mushrooms. Around the same time, there's this other, as we're moving into Europe, there's some other cave paintings where you see hunters chasing a cattle with their newly developed spear. And there's a trail of mushrooms that the hunter is following to the cattle, like to find this animal. And so he puts forward this idea that the evolution of language, the evolution of society was all based off of this, eventually leads to a same sort of a static experience in the mysteries, like we were talking about, until church is popularized and shuts it all down because that might give you a new idea about God. We're all about power and control now. So we start shutting these things down. The Inquisition being some of the earliest forms of drug prohibition there ever was. Because, you know, we're hunting witches. Witchcraft. Yeah, so, so I feel like I feel like maybe I saw, was this theory sort of brought to life at all in Fantastic Fungi? Do you know? If it was oh, probably. Because I've got I, this I picture... Now that I think about it, this probably was in mycophilia. Well, I, I've got this picture in my mind, and I don't know if it's just happening in my mind or if I've seen it before and I'm remembering. The ape dopping and eating a mushroom and then changing and then walking more and then eating a mushroom and changing. And that picture has just stuck with me because, or if you met someone from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and you tried to explain what an iPhone was, you yeah. know? It'd be like you're from a completely different planet, you know, you, yeah, that you, you can't use even any of the words. The words didn't even exist. Phones, anything, nothing existed. I don't know when the phone was invented, but, you know, 250 years ago, trying to explain someone or the way we do anything right now, the amount that life changes and advances and what shoves that forward and what shoves it forward a lot of times in giant leaps is expansion of consciousness. Mm -hmm. People dramatically shifting, like shifting thoughts around something that was once just a belief that people just believed. And we've seen a lot of those changes just in our short lifetime, big well, and fast. So yeah, anyway. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite books. I probably read this one 20 times and I'm I, I probably could walk you through it cover to cover without even trying. What um, year was that one out? Food of the Gods. Um, I wanna say 92 uh nailed it. 92. Nice. So but I mean you gotta think during food experimenting phases, we're coming out of the out of the jungle. We have to experiment with new food. Mm-hmm. The mushroom, a psychedelic mushroom, when you eat it, is well documented to cause a sharper visual acuity. It dilates the pupil. You can see better at night. You can see moving things in the peripheral quicker and stronger and react to them better. 
Mm -hmm. So not only was this a food source, it made them better at hunting. Um, I don't know about anybody else's experience with psychedelics, but my journey into learning Hebrew and other languages has entirely, it's not because I'm like part Jewish or anything, because I'm not. I purely was high on mushrooms and decided it would be an interesting thing to do. The love of language and communication really comes out with it. But also you got to think of the evolutionary impact. When you're high, what do you like to do? You like to fuck. Increased copulation is the number one like evolutionary like requirement. Yeah, holy shit. It really makes a whole lot of sense to look at. It's funny when you were like, what do people like to do, you know, when they're high? I was like, I don't know, everything, take a walk, grill, grill out, read, (laughs) draw, everything. I don't know. What what do you mean? That's funny. Because it increases pleasures. So a pleasurable thing becomes exponentially more pleasurable. Increased yeah. population. Uh, they don't have video games. They don't have a oh pen God, paper to draw with. Making a cave painting is hard work. Mm-hmm. Literally, what are you going to do? You're going to lay in the grass together and, oh, well, let's fuck. Um, I, <laughs> it's a very fantastic book. Highly recommended. I've got two more here. I'm kind of yeah. like looking at. Let's continue with slightly lighthearted and get away from the previous authors for a while. Okay. Okay. Pharmakonosis. Pharma P H A R M A K O G N O S I S. Oh, so pharma is spelled like P H. Pharmacognosis. Pharmacognosis. G N O S I S. Okay. Great. Yeah. Latin for like spiritual plants, uh spiritual medicine. Okay. Um, it's important to note with this book, this is the third book in this series. First comes Pharmacopoeia, or no, Pharmacopoeia. Sorry, I always okay. say that wrong. So plants and poetry, essentially. Pharmacodynamis. I don't know what he means by dynamis, but essentially Pharmacopoeia is plants like marijuana, coffee, very subtle plants that, you know, a little bit of creativity, a little bit of whatever. Dynamis dives into the uppers. You get into cathinone-containing plants, you get into cocaine, you get into stuff like that. Pharmacognosis is the plants that awaken the divine within. And so we keep saying entheogen, entheogen, entheogen. For those that are not familiar, both Albert Hoffman and Gordon Wasson made a huge case that we need to expand our language. Terrence McKenna made that case. We need to expand our language. Psychedelic, hallucinogenic does not do these substances justice. And especially if we clump all these substances into those categories, they each a little different. So back to like the fact that in my lifetime, I've used hallucinogenic. I've used psychedelics. I've used entheogen. I've used just drugs. And if we were to write all this down and a thousand years from now, someone was reading it, they might not know that psychedelic and hallucinogenic and entheogen we're talking about similar things because they 
feel differently in the meaning. Somebody would have to figure that out. Isn't well, that fascinating? I mean, even now to someone like myself, they all mean very different things. Uh, so yeah. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Looking back even 20 years to all of these titles, uh, almost every one of these titles, except for Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, was written in the 90s. Even then, there's an overlap, but there's this League of Spiritual Discovery, LSD for short, that, you know, Tim Leary had a lot to do with that is meeting at Esalon every year to like move forward. Sasha and Ann Shulgin, uh, Terrence McKenna, Tim Leary, uh, Albert Hoffman, R. Gordon Wasson, Robert Forte, Dale Pendle. All these people are meeting with the LSD, like trying to push the world forward in a time that we weren't actually talking about these things publicly. Yeah. Um, and now we're in a totally different time. I'm mm -hmm. very public about it and I'm pushing for it and I am not the only one. Oh, and yeah. so this idea of like this little collective, like silently talking about it, the LSD man, is, is almost archaic to us now. Um, oh yeah. Or, or it was just one radical person. Like I, I grew up, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. Psychedelics was just one beatnik, you know, artist going like psychedelics, man. You know, it was not, it, it, what I didn't think of it as being a lot of people. I thought of it as being like just a few crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> so it was yeah. serious, but you, this will crack you up. I got, um, for some little program I was in in elementary school, we had to do a just say no art project, right? And I made like a little balloon, either I just drew it or I paper mache it or whatever, with like a person hanging over the side, like, like this in the basket. And the balloon was like deflating. And, it, and the balloon was like patchwork with all the drugs, like LSD, PCP, you know, it was like a person crashing to the ground in their balloon of drugs. And I think I got some sort of prize, prize for it. <laughs> So lots of changes. <laughs> so it's interesting you bring up just say no, because now that was the curriculum in school. Now, SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which I am heavily involved in and really helped make my push to where I'm at now, they've got a curriculum that they're starting to experiment with in schools called Just Say No, K-N-O-W to say what? no oh. and so it's drug education instead of zero tolerance Man. it's a beautiful program put together by dr bill marie narlock it's i love the program and is so detailed. um amazing yeah uh, totally worth looking into yeah love um that. Anyways, the reason I chose this title, because this is way off from all the other titles, and the entire trilogy is exactly like this, just I separated which book is what type of drug. This is a really fine balance of science, poetry, and story. Oh my God, I'm um, getting that. So That's like, I, there's not one whole page, I'm literally flipping through this, there is not one whole page that isn't broken up with a recipe on how to make this thing with your substance or 
a poem just thrown in the middle or it jumps straight from like very technical reading and the science and the chemical makeup of something to a firsthand account from somebody. Wow. This is more of a work of art. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. That you know is, what? That's what your and Rob's field guide is going to be like. Oh yeah. No, I'm really looking forward to putting together a mushroom field guide with Rob. Yeah. Um, and I'll write make recipes and I'll make recipes. I'll make recipes and write funny stories. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. <laughs> um do you do you do poetry? Well, we need poetry. Yeah. I mean I can write some I can write poetry, but also I can write little stories. Yeah, uh, I'm so into that. He does all of this. I mean, he does real stories. He does theoretical, like novelettes in here. Um, but it literally, there's not one page that's continuous. It's all broken up. It's like starting to tell a story, and then he just breaks into a poem, and then he's in a recipe on how to make ayahuasca or how to make LSD literally breaks down LSD chemistry, several pages of poetry and stories and firsthand accounts. But if you can nitpick the pieces out, you can literally learn how to make LSD with this book. It is bonkers how well we wow. so, so wait a minute. So pharma, show me the title again. Uh, so it's the Pharmaco series. Pharmaco. Okay. And this is Gnosis. Pharmacognosis. Okay. So knowledge of the divine, I think, would probably be the most direct translation. I'm I'm pulling that on my ass. I'm not looking at a dictionary, but I mean, okay. think about like Gnosticism and what that means. It's right, right. an understanding that there is a higher power, that there is something divine out there, but it's a little less about it being a power structure and a god or yeah, you know yeah. it's it's a knowing yeah. yeah you love the movie hedwig and the hangry angry oh Age. my god one of the <laughs> greatest musicals of all time yeah there's there's tommy gnosis that's how he spells his name <laughs> i'm picturing that like, I, like I, oh. I love that that's the connection you make uh, oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah well hold on a second i want you to get to the last book because i want to be yes. good on time so yes uh is there anything made because i'm so sold on that book i almost want you to stop talking about it because i i don't have a lot to say about it because it's so all over the place other than no just, it sounds um, awesome though other than saying it's so all over the place and such a well-crafted piece of art yeah it's, it's not a book you read it's a book like you can open to any page and just get drawn right in. I Ooh. love it for that. I, I'll trip love and it. I'll just flip to pages of his books. Um, I love it. Love it. Okay. There is a reason I saved this last book for last. Okay. Because we've been talking a lot about history. Okay. Entheogens and the future of religion. Oh, shit. Wait, who, what's, who's the author? Oh, is there so like this a group is of authors? Another collective book edited okay. again by Robert Forte, the guy that edited Road to Eleusis. Okay. Um, so this has contributions by Albert Hoffman again, mm-hmm. Art Gordon Wasson again, okay. Terrence McKenna again. Oh, all the heavy um, hitters. So it, all the heavy hitters are in there, but then he gets into uh, 
you know, some more religious leaders. I mean, Alexander and Al Shog- uh, uh, Sasha and Ann Shogun are in there, but Dale Pendle is in there, uh, who wrote this last book, Pharmacognosis. Like, they, oh. literally, every author except for John Allegro is in this book. But it also contains Rick Strassman, who does DMT, the spiritual molecule, uh, spirit molecule. Let me get these names right. Brother David Steindl Ross, a Benedictine monk in here that also writes a chapter. Holy crap. But then there's also the very last chapter. And this is really what sells it to me because I know him personally and he's one of my favorite people. The last chapter, a little less religious, but a little bit more relevant to what we're doing with the statewide and what psychedelics and spirituality are why we have this statewide movement to decriminalize these substances. But the last chapter of this book is law enforcement against entheogens. Is it religious persecution? It's written by Eric Sterling. Eric okay. Sterling uh, was the head of, oh my goodness, the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. Uh, don't quote me on that. Don't kill me, Eric, if I got that wrong. Uh, since the mid-90s, a executive director. He also was a board member alongside of me with on Students for Sensible Drug Policy, uh, which we've talked about. In the 80s, there's a really, really fantastic debate at some university between him and Joe Biden. So he sat on the House Judiciary Committee on narcotic drugs as an advisor Um, in, in like the early, in the 80s. He's been around forever. Eric Serling is the most humble, loving, beautiful person I know, and really inspired me down this path. I I was already on the path, but seeing somebody 40 years my senior, I might be reaching there, probably 35 years my senior, I don't know. Like, really doing it, doing it. Yes, and it, like, yes. really solidified who I want to be as a person, like fighting wow, against shit. injustice and like knowing that I was on the right path. Actually, you know Julie really well. Uh, When we were in St. Louis at the Drug Policy Alliance Conference, we went on a scavenger hunt with Eric all over Union State in St. Louis. You'll have to ask her about it. She she also thinks he's one of the most fantastic people. Oh my gosh, Um, that's so wonderful. What is, like, were you just fanboying out? Were you just... I I mean, I know him very well. I serve on a board with him for a while. Okay, okay. I I don't fanboy about him too much. Right. But when Biden was running for president and I just found this, well, I didn't find it. One of my friends sent it to me from, I believe it was 88, right before Biden was running for president. Yeah. This debate where like Biden is very hard, like no on drugs. And dude, he is getting demolished by Eric Sterling in this debate. It is gold. It is absolutely beautiful. Wait a minute. Biden ran for president in 88? First time he lost. What? Look it up. Shit. I'm learning so much here. It's just crazy. So, (laughs) wow. So he wrote that last chapter. Tell me a little bit more about that one. About Um, that book in totality. I I, I mean, I think the book speaks for itself. I, I mean, the title... I, why I saved it for last, the future of religion. 
it does a great overview of a lot of the topics we already talked about with these other okay. books. But Jack Cornfield, the Buddhist monk that's really well respected, has a chapter in it. So he draws the parallels to Buddhism. Like I said, uh, the Benedictine monk, Brother David Steinel Ross, he interviews in here. Actually, I think they both have their own chapter. But then the Argorn Wasson is an interview with Forte. Essentially, he connects all the dots I'm trying to hear by presenting all these books. Yeah, yeah. He oh, awesome. really pulls it all together, talks about how do we move forward and why is this important to reinstitute as was the point of McKenna's manifesto, Food of the Gods, to reintroduce these sacred plants as a staple, not only to our diet, but to our evolutionary being, like the next steps. This is how we get there. But I think it's relevant because we started on social justice. We started mm -hmm. on policy. Yeah. This ends on the policy. Oh, and yeah. Right now, what we are doing here in Michigan is the policy. Yeah. This, this paved our road. Yeah, we're both like we're both like trying to free plants and people. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know I had a really hard time picking just a handful of books. So let me be honest here. Well, there, you know it could be. I want to tell you this before I forget because I'm assuming you're involved in setting up Entheofest. Is I have a picture of because it's nice. It's like September ish, so I, I have a picture of us. If I could partner with Entheofest and Reeds and Weeds could host like the book sales table. You know what I mean? And we curate like ten books. <laughs> what? You're giving me goosebumps just thinking about it. <laughs> but we curate a little library that we can sell at the festival and that way we can encourage people like you you know we can have our little bookstore absolutely um i think jim is the man to talk to about that okay uh, the only thing i've really volunteered for is uh helping source uh sacred plants to decorate the stage um oh, right on i i've i've been right. uh i'm pretty stretched thin uh, so I decided not to be a major piece of the Entheofest planning committee. But then if we get to do Picard's book, you'll be on that Reeds and Weeds, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I would not miss a Reeds and Weeds with Leonard Picard. Oh my gosh. Hello. Greatest. It'll um, be the greatest. I, I'm pretty sure out of our entire friend group, I'm the only one that's actually read his book so far. Um, oh, it's huge. I've got to get on it. I got it in the mail, but I haven't started it yet because I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, I almost failed a class because of that book. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited. Like, I, I could not put it down. Ooh. And uh, I, it's one of, if you ask me, top five books of all time, Rosa Paracelsus is up there every time. A um, oh, little bit of background, and I'm sure he'll talk about it. Paracelsus is the father of modern toxicology. He is famous for poison is made by the dose. So essentially, everything in this world is potentially poisonous. Right, it is of course. dosage that makes it toxic. Right. Water's um, great until you yeah. drown. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. 
And so, you know, in saying that, he's saying, you know, some of the most toxic things we know, arsenic, uh, whatever. There is a safe dosage of arsenic. I know that sounds bonkers to people, but right. it's true. It's true. Um, and so when we talk about plants or poisons, uh, I have a hard time with the word poison because of the connotation associated, but the Dale Pendo books, they're called Plant Teachers and the Poison Path. Um, and he gets into some really obscure plants that I personally would advise highly against experimenting with. Oh, shoot. Mostly from personal experience. At the same time, it's not wrong. There's something to be learned in all these states, but there, there's yeah. a lot here to digest. I hope I at least turned a couple people on to a few books that they're like, oh, that's the one for me. Right. Um, well, let me let me say before. Um, so thank you so much. That was so fun. And if I talk to Jim about this little EntheoFest library, can you just curate the list? To see if we can order well, some. That's a, that's a non-question right there. That's, okay. Again, maybe not easy, but like, I think we could pick, like you said, 10 that we could maybe sell. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe an extended list for further suggested reading. Yeah, there's a lot to figure out with that. I'm excited. Okay. Thanks so much. Oh my I, goodness. Uh, it's, I love this show. I'm so glad I get to be on it again. I'm looking forward to a third episode. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I love to read. So uh, I'm really glad you have this show. And oh, thank yeah. you again. Thank you, man. All right. I'll see you soon. Bye. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.